And let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. We read the Word of God. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, And some are first who will be last. It's the word of the Lord. Are there just a few who are being saved? Now there's a question. An intriguing question. Indeed. We have lots of questions for God, don't we? And it's good to go to God and ask questions. He has the answers. He has all the answers. He has the right answers. And yet, sometimes when we come to God with questions, we don't hear the answer right away. But if we'll listen carefully, what I want you to know this morning is that sometimes you will get answers to questions you weren't asking. Because sometimes we ask the wrong questions. God knows not only all the answers, but he knows the right questions to ask. Any good teacher knows the questions his or her students should be asking. Often we ask the wrong questions because we want the answer that we want, and we want it now. And we go to God, and often we just want affirmation of the answer we already had in our mind. But where is room for learning? So it's good to ask questions because we're learners, but we need to understand this morning that sometimes being a good learner knows what questions to ask. And we can go to God's Word and discover that there are questions that we need to be asking. And we know there are questions we need to be asking because the Bible's giving us the answer to those questions. So this man, this person, we don't know who he is, where he's from, what's on his heart, the motive behind his question, but he asks an intriguing question. Are there are just a few that are being saved? And I have a footnote there on the first slide. Note that this question implies that Jesus was not preaching an easy-to-believe gospel. By now, the crowd is coming to the opinion that salvation isn't what they thought it was. That the message Jesus was preaching was eliminating some people's hopes or crushing their expectations of what they thought it meant to be in the kingdom and how to get in the kingdom. More on that later, but I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about some of the stories in the Bible where people ask the wrong questions. And you understand it's their circumstances that lead them to ask these questions. One could say the book of Job is all about about a man who has the wrong question. 
why me? And when you're suffering, that is the question we all want to know. Why me? Why the suffering, God? And it was the bad theology of Job's time that taught, if you're suffering, it's because God is punishing you for sin. Job being perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, you would think that that beautifully written book would have corrected that poor theology. And yet, by Jesus' day, it was still what was being taught. If we're doing well and we're prospering and we're rich, God must be pleased with us because we're righteous. And if you're poor and you're an outcast or you're ill, it's because of sin. Now certainly we understand that all suffering is due to sin. We live in a fallen world and we live in fallen bodies and sin is the reason for all suffering. And yet, it doesn't mean that your particular suffering is directly correlated to a sin you committed. Perhaps you did commit a sin that led to your own suffering. You did something foolish and careless, and you were in an accident, and now you're paying the consequences. Yet there's so much more at work behind the scenes, we understand, and that's what the book of Job is about. In Job's case, he's suffering more than any man has ever suffered, short of Christ. And his friends assumed he must have committed some great sin. Job knew he hadn't committed some great sin, so he had a dilemma. He loved God, and he feared God, and he blessed the name of the Lord... But in his heart of hearts, he felt God had made some kind of mistake. And if God would just give him the chance to make his case, surely, God, you would see that I don't deserve this kind of suffering. His friends assumed he had made some kind of grievous sin. It was their only explanation that their theology would allow. Fess up, Job. You can't hide your sin any longer. Look at you. God's heavy hand of discipline is upon you. Now, we know the answer to the question, why me? Why this suffering? Because God let us know what was happening behind the scenes. Satan, always wanting to impugn God's character, God said, look at my faithful servant Job. In other words, Satan, the fallen angel, that's the way to love and trust God, not like you. And Satan says, oh, well, it's only because you give him everything. And so God allows Satan to test Job to demonstrate that God's people do love him from a pure heart. And... So the game is on. But down there on earth, they don't know what's going on up in heaven. All they see is a man who has lost everything. And their only explanation is, boy, you must have really messed up to deserve all this. And we know that's not the case. And so Job's asking this question, God, why me? I don't deserve this kind of suffering. And he's asking the wrong question, understandably. So instead of answering his question directly, God helps Job understand what are the right questions. And so he tells Job, now I will question you. And he asks a series of of questions such as, where were you basically when everything was made out of nothing? And where were you when the seas were divided? And who feeds the fawns? Is that your plan? Do you get up each morning and come up with a plan to feed all the animals and 
keep the whole ecosystem running. And after this avalanche of questions that Job knows he can't answer, he finally gets it and realizes, I can trust God, even if the answer isn't apparent to me right now. I can trust God. He is infinitely wiser than I am. He is infinitely good and holy and just. And so Job says, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. I repent in dust and ashes. See, the right questions when you're suffering are, Lord, what are you teaching me in my suffering? Lord, I trust that all things work together for good of those who are called according to your purpose. And that nothing can separate me from the love of God that, it is, that is in Christ Jesus. So I don't know what the purpose is yet, but I trust that you have a purpose in my suffering. Help me to see the lessons I'm supposed to learn in my suffering. I shared recently about some of my own uh, suffering. I'm doing well now. Thank you for your prayers. But I was asking the wrong questions too. When you go day after day after day and things get worse and not better, you begin to ask, why me? Is this it? This is life now? Have you asked those questions before? We see some heads nodding. Should I just assume this is the way it's going to be? How am I supposed to do my job? How am I supposed to lead my family? How am I supposed to shepherd the flock? How am I supposed to take care of the almost 450 people who come every Sunday? And it's not the same 450 people every Sunday. So there's more like six or 700 that call this their church home. And when I finally started listening to God, he showed me better questions. And he asked me some questions. Like, who said it was your job to take care of all 700 people here? That's my job. That's the job of God's people. Whatever it is I have for you to do, my son, I will give you the strength you need. And my strength is magnified in your weakness. Well, I know that and I preach it, but... Certainly, that doesn't sound like a very efficient way to run your church. Who wants to follow someone who's weak and losing weight and feeling puny and tired and full of doubts? People who are weak and puny and tired and full of doubts. I've had more positive response from God's people after making that revelation apparent. Well, there's somebody we can listen to because he understands our plight. And the older you are, the better the response I got from <laughs> Apparently, I have much more of this to look forward to as I get older. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Other questions people have asked in the Bible. Matthew chapter 19, the wrong question. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? How's that for the wrong question? And we understand historically at the time there was two schools of thought, two main rabbis, 
one who taught you could divorce your wife for any reason at all, and one who was way more conservative in his teaching. Which camp is Jesus in? Are you of this school of thought, or are you of this school of thought? And Jesus says, I'm of God's school of thought. Have you not read that he who made who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is God's. It belongs to him. He defines it. He defines the boundaries and the duration. And so I know that when people are struggling in their marriage, they're tempted to ask such questions. Well, certainly it's not like always that case. There's got to be exceptions. I remember hearing from the pulpit a couple of times Pastor Andy teaching when he was a young man going to his pastor to ask about dancing. And where is it in the Bible where it says we can't dance? And his pastor wisely said something to effect that I know I'm paraphrasing. Why, why do you want to know? Are you looking for what you can get away with? Or are you looking in God's word to see the best way to glorify him? And he learned the lesson. And the person who doesn't learn the lesson kind of sits there and then goes, so is there going to be dancing or not? You know, you're not listening. (laughs) Many of our questions are yes-no questions, and when we come to God, his question to us is, why are you asking? Because he cares about our heart. He's not a legalist. Yes, he has laws. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. But... You've heard from this pulpit time and time again that the heart of the matter is the heart. That's what matters. That's what Pastor Craig's going to teach you in that class. And I highly recommend you go to it, even if it means you miss the sermon second service. It's four, four classes. You help the man get through a master's degree in biblical counseling. Go avail yourself of this wonderful resource God has given our church. Getting to the heart of the matter is what you need to help people with when they come to you. I love how he said that people mock Christianity when everything's going well in their life, and then they come to you with questions when everything's falling apart. That's your window of opportunity to bring them to the Lord. Take them to the great physician. Take them to our Lord, our teacher, and through faith in Christ, our Savior and our friend. That's the kind of friend we all need. When I came to the church 10 years ago and put on my first vacation Bible school, all that work, all that planning... You have that wonderful exhaustion when it's all over. And the number one question I got from people was, so how many decisions for Christ were there? Threw me off guard because I wasn't raised in the Baptist tradition. This is apparently an important question to Baptists. And it is an important question. Honestly, all 250 kids made a decision for Christ. Why would you not? At that age, in this wonderful week filled with games and snacks and popsicles and fun and great music. Hey, who wants this forever? Me. That's what they're associating with putting their faith in Jesus. So we do VBS more as an apologetics event. Because we know that many children who've placed their faith in Christ at VBS walk away from the church. Many kids who place their faith in Christ at a VBS, that was an authentic profession of faith. They were regenerated. They can look back and say, that's the moment that changed everything. And so we preach the gospel and we invite people to follow Jesus 
and trust him as Lord and Savior? Of course we do. But the better question of than how many people made a decision for Christ is who made a decision for Christ? They're individuals, they're not numbers. Who made a decision for Christ? What was the context? What's going on in their life? Did you see a a change? Did you see fruits of repentance afterwards? I can honestly get any one of your kids to make a profession in Christ. That's not the name of the game. I suppose it's important to count. I do suppose it's important. I'm a math guy. You need to tell me about counting. In fact, that's my problem is I have to be on guard against making everything about numbers and measurable results. The Southern Baptist Convention likes to collect data. <laughs> we call it nickels and noses. Nickels and noses. Sherry has to fill out these, these reports. How many people came to VBS and how many decisions for Christ and how many baptisms and I'm looking more for changed lives. So I say that every time somebody says no to the flesh and yes to the Bible, that's a decision for Christ. In that sense, that's what we're looking for. Of course we're going to proclaim the gospel and invite people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you go to VBS, all from age 4 through 12, you may make, help me out with the math there, how many decisions for Christ is, yeah, year after year after year after year after year, and they finish up in the 6th grade, and then sometimes they disappear and walk away from the faith, and you think, I don't get it, they made 9 decisions for Christ, And we understand salvation is a work of God in the heart. It can't be manipulated by us. At the end of the sermon, I said, lock the doors. Nobody's going home till we get ten people walking this aisle. <laughs> We'd get ten people. Some people would just be nudging friends out in the aisle. I'm hungry. Go. Recommit. Not to downplay an altar call because some of you came forward. And that was your day. You came to Christ and that is precious to you. It's precious to you. And so you're tempted to ask, why don't we do altar calls every Sunday? And it's not a bad question, but there's better questions to ask. There's better questions to ask. And so we go to the Word of God to get the questions, the right questions, because if we ask the right questions of God, we'll always get the right answers. I have this reputation as a teacher, and you can talk to my kids and they'll roll their eyes. That if you're asking the wrong questions, then I will not give you the answer you're looking for. Because in math, we just want the answer so we can finish our homework and go outside and play. And then you've learned absolutely nothing. And the same is true in our spiritual walk. If you're looking for trite answers, don't expect spiritual growth. And so sometimes I'll just say, well, why do you want to know? In a math class, what is a number? Let's get philosophical. And I'm doing it by design because I realize they have no intention of finding out why they got the problem wrong and how to actually attack it. They just want the answer. 
Give me the worksheet. Give me the answers so I can get out of here. And so when people come to you with spiritual questions, you need to discern, do they really want the answer? Or have they already decided what the answer is and they want you to just reaffirm what they've already decided? Where's the growth there? Where's the change in that? So without being flippant, sometimes your answer might be, why do you want to know? God is ready to answer questions, but he cares about your motives. Why do you want to know? What's it to this guy if only a few are being saved? As long as he's being saved, that should be his first question. I think people tend to ask this question about the number of people being saved because in our heart of hearts, part of our fallenness is to sit in judgment over God. I have a pretty good idea who I think should be saved, and I'll follow this God if he saves the people I think should be saved. I can't, I can't follow a God that I don't respect. He doesn't need to earn your respect. If anyone is worthy of unconditional respect, it's the God of the universe. And salvation belongs to God. And yet this particular topic is one that keeps people out of the kingdom because they can't figure out how God is going to save everyone. I remember witnessing to a man who was actually interviewing me for a job. And I shared the gospel with him. And he said, yeah, but what about the bush people off in some tribe in some faraway country who don't get a chance to hear the gospel? So, oh, you grew up in the church, didn't you? And he said, yeah, he, he, he grew up Catholic. But he was agnostic now. And he was agnostic because he didn't think it was fair that the way you get saved is to hear the gospel. And instead of coming up with some convoluted plan about how maybe God does get the gospel to, to everyone, my response to him was, well, you're hearing the gospel right now. He got it to you. God's got He's got some resources. If he wants to get the gospel to someone, he'll get it to them. You don't need to worry about how an infinite God who is far wiser than you is going to enact his plan of salvation. But you're going to sit here and not place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and receive this beautiful free gift from God that all your sins will be forgiven and you'll have assurance that you'll be with God forever in glory, fully satisfied, full of joy? Because you're a little confused about the numbers? Maybe we don't have the capacity to understand the plan in full. How God works this whole salvation out. But he has told us the answer to this question. How can I be saved? How can I be saved? Not when I have figured out how to be God, then I will get saved. Why would you need to get saved if you could figure out how to be God? You'd be God. Oh, there's the crux of the problem. People trying to be God. Where have I heard that before? Genesis 3. This is our problem. And so when we go to God with questions, often we're questioning Him from a position of authority that is not our authority. 
So you have to be careful when you ask God questions. You go to him humbly. You can be raw. You can be honest. We'll hear more of that next Sunday from the Psalms. Yet always with an attitude of, I will not question God because God alone is holy and right and just and good. And I have the confidence that in Christ Jesus, we know that God is working all things together for good. For those who love him are called according to his purpose. In Christ, that's me. God has a purpose, a good purpose in all that he does. And he is working it out. At the end of the narrative, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God No, that's not what he says. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's not like it just happened to happen and God goes, oh, I could use that. God is sovereign. I don't like that. That doesn't seem right or fair. I've got questions. You've crossed the line. As Paul says in Romans 9, who are you, O man? God will be doing the questioning today. We can ask questions, but we are not to be questioners. You understand the difference. A questioner is one who's already decided what the right answer is. And you will answer me. So this man asks the wrong question. It's an intriguing question. Makes us go, yeah, yeah, is it few? Is it many? Is it a whole bunch? Is it 144,000 only? And Jesus' answer is, strive to enter through the narrow door... For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He answers his question with a command. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. The word in the Greek is the word where we get the word agonize from. I want to say it's agonizomai. There we go. Agonizomai. Agonize. Strive. It's not work really hard to get into heaven. That's not what he's saying. Read it again. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Why? That's a good question. Glad you asked, because many, I tell you, will seek to try to enter and will not be able. They'll seek to enter by the wrong door. That's the implication. You have to strive to get in through the narrow door. Now, I've never had to strive to get through a narrow door because I'm narrow. But that's not the kind of narrow door he's talking about here. It's metaphorical. It's spiritual. Suck in your gut. There's an easy path that is easy to the flesh. And there is a difficult path. Trying to get into heaven by just doing more good than bad is the easy door. It's easy because we end up deciding what is good and what is evil. And we end up keeping score in our mind. I got to do a few more good, good deeds today. The scales 
tipped in favor of good, I'm good today. They're your scales. They're your weights. Everybody is going to tip the scales in their own favor. That's the easy door. So That's not the narrow door. Many are trying to get in through that other door. And they will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? Because that door doesn't, doesn't get in. It's a door, but it doesn't get in to heaven. It leads to a different kingdom. So here's the right question, which I think is just summed up perfectly in Acts 16.30. The Philippian jailer, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. What must I do to be saved? And he's waiting for a laundry list of things he must do because everybody has a works-based salvation mentality. We all come into this world with a works-based salvation mentality and Israel was works-based salvation mentality to the nth degree. This is the culture Jesus was fighting against. Why is he belaboring this point? Because he's preaching to people who have been saturated and steeped in works-based salvation theology. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and elders were convinced that we are going to heaven because we keep the law. And you are not getting into heaven, you sinners, you tax collectors, you unrighteous, you lepers, because your disease must be proof that you're a sinner. The outcast, those impoverished, this must be proof that you're a sinner. You're not going to heaven. This is their theology. And they tell this man, believe, trust, from the word Pistis, faith, piste, uh, pisteo, to believe, to have faith. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus that he's mighty to save and you will be saved. No works on the list there. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Not that when you believe that your whole family ends up getting saved. Obviously, we know the scriptures don't teach that. You will be saved and go home and present the gospel to your whole household and they can be saved as well. Your wife, your children, your manservant, your maidservant. Salvation is for everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, in their theology of the day, there was only certain people eligible for salvation. And the list was getting narrower and narrower and narrower. No Gentiles. Okay, how about these Jews? No, they're half Jews, so no Samaritans. Okay, so just Jews. Well, not all Jews. You know, us four no more. And then pretty soon it's just me and Jesus. That guy with the internet ministry of calling out heresy. And you find out it's just him now. You're waiting for him to call himself out any day. That's it. No one's getting saved now. So we know Jesus isn't a universalist. Everybody's being saved. By no means. He says later, people will be cast out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yet, the people who would say, Amen to Jesus isn't a universalist, 
may be surprised to find out you're not being saved. You're way too happy about people being kept out of the kingdom. So you have some people sitting in judgment over God because he's keeping some people out of the kingdom. And you have other people sitting, sitting in judgment over God because they think he's letting too many people in. It's God's kingdom. He'll let in whomever he pleases. Amen? Amen. And should we not be excited that God is merciful to sinners? Point number four, many will wait too long or will try to enter by the wrong door. Jesus said, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. He waited too long. This is not a picture of honest seekers humbly asking for God to have mercy on them. This is a picture of people who when God was being merciful and offering salvation, they didn't come. And now that the door is closed and they realize we've made a big mistake, it's too late now. And they still aren't coming in earnest. I'm sure there were people banging on the door of the ark when the floods came. Oh, now you want to believe. But we could have confidence that because God didn't let them on the ark, here's what would have happened if they let them on the ark after the flood water subsided and they got off the ark. They would have gone right back to their sinful ways. God is looking for people who desperately want a right relationship with God. He's the prize. He's the goal. He's the gift. Not for people who are using God to get the things that they want out of life. Point number five. Here's another good question then. If some people are waiting too long, then When's the cutoff? Oh, no, that's the wrong question. How long can I wait? Can I, can I sleep on it? Why would you want to sleep on it? Do you not understand the gift? This is the greatest gift ever. The greatest deal of all time. You trade in your filthy sin and you get Jesus' perfect righteousness. Wow. Talk about those people who line up. We're coming up on Thanksgiving, right? Black Friday. Doorbusters. People should be lining up for this gift. If they really knew what the gift was, they'd be like the man who found a treasure in a field, realized how valuable it was, looked around to make sure no one else saw the treasure, went and sold everything he had so he had enough money to buy the field so that he now owns the treasure in that field. He didn't say, hey, maybe 10 years from now if I've accumulated enough capital, I might go try to buy that field. He went now. When is the right time? So when you're witnessing to people when they come to you with their problems and I'm sure they have real problems we all do and you've taken some time to weep with those who weep at some point you get to the crux of the problem and you say what you need is a right relationship with God and he's made that available through faith in Jesus Christ not after you fix all these problems you came to talk to me about. Not that those problems aren't important, but they're temporary. 
They're of this world. There's a whole nother life waiting for you. Well, can I, can we make an appointment for coffee next week? And 2 Corinthians 6, 2. At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. God determines when the acceptable time is for salvation. Okay, so when's the acceptable time, God? Behold, now is the acceptable time. The door to the ark is open now. All aboard. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. Don't wait. You don't know if you have a tomorrow. You don't even know if you have a next minute. And even after you've placed your faith in Christ, this attitude should carry with you. Now is the day for salvation. Now is the day for obedience to Christ. Now is the day to labor in His kingdom. Now the harvest is ripe. Another good question we should ask then, if there is a narrow door, then what is the right door? I want to make sure I'm getting in through the right door. What is the right door? Glad you asked. Go to God's Word and say, what is the right door? Jesus talked about enter by the narrow door. What is the narrow door? Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. I am the door. I am. Ego a me. Name of God. I am the door. Not a door. There's only one door that gets into heaven. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When? Today is the day of salvation. Enter by the narrow door now. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I guess it's like you get your hand stamped like at Disneyland. Like once, you, once you're in, you're in. You're not in and out like I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved. No, you, you have freedom in the kingdom because you're a child of God and you're a co-heir with Christ and you have full kingdom prerogatives. Child of God. My children can come in and out of my house. I don't stop them each time and say, who are you and what do you want? The analogy only goes so far, children. You can't just come and go as you please. (laughs) We have curfews. You get the point. Matthew 7.13, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. First sermon I heard. Returning back to church. And I was not seeking after God. I I assure you, there was no seeking happening at all. There is none who seek after God. No, not one. I went back to church because it was the right thing for grown-ups to do. That's why Jennifer and I went back to church. That's where adults meet other adults. Respectable adults. We don't go to bars anymore to hang out. We hang out at church. Not to find God, but so we could say to the world, I am a grown-up, respectable person. And could we find a rather large church where we can get lost in the back and no one will ask us to do anything? And could you find one with comfortable seats because my low back hurts? I am not kidding. That was what we were looking for. No one seeks after God. No, not one. A comfortable pew? Yes, 
Praise the Lord, he was seeking after me and Jennifer. And this is the first sermon I heard, and I said, what? Everybody's getting into heaven. That's what I was taught. At least that's what was implied by the way Christianity was presented to me growing up. This seems very narrow-minded. We could say very narrow-gated. Yes. And praise God that there aren't lots of different ways and we don't know which one is the right door. It's not a fun house. There's one door and it's been clearly marked. It's the one dripping with the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't want to go through that door. I'll have to admit I'm a sinner. I'll have to admit I don't have all the answers. I'll have to admit that I'm not qualified to be my own God. That's why it's the narrow door. That's why it's the door people don't want to go in through. They want to say, can I just get out of hell and then continue to be my own God and be my own source of wisdom? That door is the door that got you out of the kingdom. You don't get into the kingdom by going back through the door that booted you out of the kingdom. There's only room in heaven for one God, and you ain't it. Neither am I. Praise the Lord. I thought I'd say amen before you said amen. <laughs> Love that scene for the younger people here in one of the Avengers movie where Loki says, I'm a God to the Hulk. And Hulk picks him up and smacks him around and he's laying crushed in the concrete, whimpering, and Hulk says, puny God. We're puny as gods. It just doesn't work. Lots of room in heaven for redeemed sinners. No room in heaven for would-be poser gods. The occupancy sign for God's one. The inn is full. But there's room for those being made into the image of God. Because heaven's a place of perfection. So no room for people who cleaned up their act a little bit better than the next person. That's not heaven. That's just a little bit better earth. Is that what you want? It's not what I'm hoping for. I want perfection. I want no more sin. I want no more tears. And heaven is that place. Then how are we going to get sinners in there? With an alien righteousness. With a righteousness that's not your own. God's righteousness is given to you through faith in Christ. So then another good question is, what is the wrong door? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Salvation then will not come through just associating yourself with Jesus. It won't come through heritage or family lineage or church attendance or denominational affiliation. That would be the equivalent here. Jesus, I was there. I heard your teaching. Did you trust in my teaching? Hmm. Jesus, I was there. I made a profession of faith. Was it really a profession of faith? Or was it what would make people happy around you at the time? And when you're around other people who it doesn't make them happy when you make a profession of faith, do you deny your Lord and Savior? Maybe not verbally, but by the way you live and act. These are good questions we need to ask of ourselves. 
Jesus must know you and you must know him. If you are in his family through faith, he will know where you are from. So when you enter by the narrow gate, he will say, come on in. If you try to get in by another door and you say, well, I know Jesus, I've heard of him, I went to church my whole life. My daddy was an elder, my papa was a preacher. My granddaddy gave the money for the building to be built. There's a, there's a pew with a plaque on the back with my family's name. We know Jesus. Jesus says, I don't know you. You could do lots of things that look very religious and have no relationship with Christ. People who have a right relationship with Christ will say, Lord, I've done all these things for you to say thank you for what you've done for me, but I don't even know if I do them with the right motives. Have mercy on me. There's a heart that's humble and knows I desperately need a righteousness that's not my own. Doesn't striving to enter, point number eight, sound like works-based salvation? Why would Jesus say to strive to enter? For the legalist, that's like, I am, I'm striving, I'm agonizing. I give and give and give and give and give, and I do and I do and I do and I do and I do. That's not what he means by striving. He's saying that it is so easy to try to get into heaven by the other broad door that you will have to agonize to humble yourself and only enter by the narrow gate. The broad path that leads to destruction is easy because it's the way we naturally think. Jesus isn't teaching salvation by works. He doesn't teach it. His apostles didn't teach it. Could they be any more clear? What does Paul say? By works of the law will no man be justified. Jesus, the God-man, is justified by works of the law because he keeps the law perfectly with perfect motives, with the perfect record all the time. We get his record by faith. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of works so that no one will boast. He's saying we must strive to put our faith in Jesus Because our pride will try to get us into the kingdom any other way than denying ourselves and receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. That easy door is the door that leads to regret and anguish. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. When I was studying this verse this week, it gave me great peace and comfort because I've read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you had to get into heaven by works of the law, those guys are not the example you want to follow, and yet they're in the Hebrews' faith hall of fame. They're patriarchs. At some point, we trust that they put their faith in God, as the Scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's those who think they don't need God's mercy who will not enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, God is saving people from all over the world. The Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, and elders had it wrong. There's lots of people God is saving. It's just not the people they thought. Praise the Lord. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last in this world who will be first there. And some are first or think they're first in this world who will be last. So then, we conclude the right question isn't, 
are few being saved? The right question is, are you being saved? And once you have that question answered through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you the good news that there are a lot being saved. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice they're all standing around the sacrificial Lamb, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's how they got there. That's what they're going to worship God for. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And they'll be clothed in white robes. They'll have the righteousness of God given to them. And palm branches signifying they know who their king is. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And those not there will be crying out for all eternity, salvation belongs to me. I determine if I'm saved or not. Wow. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Are you saved? Are you entering by the narrow gate? The gate is wide open. It's narrow, but it is wide open today. Father God, thank you for saving sinners like me. Thank you for showing me the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ and faith in him. Lord, if there is anyone here today still trying to get in through the broad gate, open their eyes and bring repentance to their heart. May they enter by the narrow gate For today is the acceptable time of salvation. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.